Volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Hello, listeners. This is Sal Sylvester from 512 Solutions. We're an executive coaching and leadership development firm based here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm the founder and CEO also of Coach Metrics, a cloud-based tool that we use to measure behavior change in leadership and coaching. Fantastic to be with you here today. As you know, if you've listened to some of our previous podcasts, we are here to explore the future of work and what that means for the future of leadership. And as our society and our world changes around us, what does that mean for leadership? And what does that mean for leaders as the complexity of our business and our organizations increases? Who will leaders need to be? How will they need to show up to be successful? So that's really where my curiosity lies as an executive coach and leadership development facilitator. And what we're going to focus on today is around hiring. Hiring has always been and always will be a critical role for leaders and leaders in the future if we want to build healthy and aligned workplaces And I know that having worked with thousands of people each year, how difficult this is for leaders. There's the urgency of the day, the pressure to deliver, and oftentimes hiring is considered sort of a nuisance until leaders can get back to quote unquote their real work. But hiring the right people may be the most important aspect of leadership, especially when it comes to creating healthy workplaces and healthy cultures. So I am excited to have with me today, Beth Smith, as our guest, she's the founder and president of A-List Interviews. And Beth has a really unique story in that she made a bad hire that literally put her in the national news. And that experience drove her to figure out how to hire people and how to create a process that works for both employers and employees. And after persevering through that very difficult experience, she embarked on an enormous research process that included interviewing 20,000 people throughout her career and developing her response analysis system. She's helped C-level leaders and business owners restructure their hiring process to be more successful. And she's also the author of Why Can't I Hire Good People? I think you're going to be really interested to hear a number of aspects of Uh, her hiring process, some of which you may have seen in the past, but some are pretty surprising, especially when it comes to why you should not review resumes. Welcome, Beth, to the podcast. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Sal. I really appreciate the invitation for today. So you became an expert and an authority in interviewing because of a bad hire that you experienced that was very costly that ended up in the national press. Tell us about your experience. So I owned a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado, right across the street from CU. And I hired a guy to help me manage the place. He let in two underage football players. They were accused of a felony 
This was one of the incidents in the Colorado football recruiting scandal, and it made national news. Mm. The next day, the reporters were everywhere, and in walks the Boulder Police Department. They told me I was in danger of losing my license. I said, is there anything that I can do to fix that? And I had a Boulder police officer lean across the table, point his finger at me and say, you have to learn how to hire better. Hmm. And I said, okay. So I went through my network. I looked for every business owner, C-level executive, hiring manager, VP, whoever. And I called as many people as I could. And I said to them, I'm under direct orders from the Boulder police department to learn how to hire better. Can you help me? And not a single person said yes. Every person I talked to said something along the lines of, I'm selling my business after 30 years because I can't get the right people. Hmm. Good luck with that, Beth. When you figure it out, please come back and teach me. I have been hiring for 20 years. I can't get it right. You have about a 50-50 shot. It was not good. And in the back of my mind, I kind of thought to myself, oh, this is a much larger problem than me and my little restaurant, but I didn't really have time to think about that. I had to, I had to figure it out for myself. There just weren't any resources out there. And so I spent the next four years interviewing every resume that came across my desk, looking for themes. What do I need to know in 15 minutes or less that would indicate that this one is going to be successful? And just started paring it down. I have interviewed almost 20,000 people in my career. Hmm. <laughs> the, the themes that I noticed in those first four years of interviewing just anybody who came along really is the foundation for the business today. And then when we sold the restaurant in 2006, I sat on the couch for a year. I watched a lot of Law & Order. <laughs> and <laughs> that's a true statement. <laughs> and mm -hmm. one day I woke up and I thought, you know, I made a promise to these people that I talked to that if I figured this thing out, I needed to go back and teach them. And I had almost a 0% turnover my last year in business. So that literally was how A-list interviews got started. I woke up one day and I thought I owe it to these people to teach what I know. And then I have been doing this work ever since. Awesome. It is such an important topic. And a lot of the work we do, and I know that you do as well, is with C-suite leaders. And when we think about C-suite leaders, especially a CEO, he or she may make five or six critical decisions in the course of a year that really will change the direction or the trajectory of a business. And they make decisions all the time, but I mean the big ones. And I have to believe that the hiring decisions are really some of the most critical and important decisions that they make. I would agree because one bad hire can ruin a company. Just one, one good hire can make a company, right? When you have these critical positions and you get it right, there's nothing better. Yeah. When you have this critical position and you get it wrong, there's nothing worse. Hmm. So it really comes down to for my C-level clients, I tell them your job is to create the vision for the company, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, and hire the people to implement that vision. And if you can't do half of that, 
then what are your chances of building a solid business? It doesn't exist. I want to get into some of the steps and tools and processes that you've come across to really get that hiring right. But before we get there, I want to talk about trends because this podcast is really about the future of leadership. And a guest that I had on the show just a few episodes ago, Von Rea, is a global engineering leader. And, and part of what he was talking about is some of the trends that he's saying is there's this unemployment rate that's extremely low in the United States, but it, not just here, overseas as well. And that's really impacted how they think about staffing and, and resourcing and, and hiring and, and, the, and the impact as leaders. What are some of the trends that you're noticing as it relates to hiring in the workplace today? Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up the unemployment rate because this is a hot topic out there. I can't find anybody because the unemployment rate is so low. And so here's what I tell my clients. The unemployment rate has absolutely nothing to do with your talent pool. Mm -hmm. And here's why. We know that anywhere between 80 and 85% of current employees are not happy at work and they're disengaged and they're looking for something better. So your talent pool may not be unemployed like they were in 2009 when it was nutty, right? but they are currently employed and they're looking. So what that does for your recruiting and what that does for your interview process is it's probably going to take longer. People who are unemployed can start on Monday. You know, people who are employed in general, most of them want to give notice and do what's honorable for their current employer. So your recruiting and your interview process is longer, but this whole concept of the unemployment rate kills my talent pool, all that is is fear-based. It doesn't help you create the vision for what this role should be, and it doesn't help you attract the people that you're looking for when you approach hiring from a desperate standpoint. Mm. So I don't look at those numbers. I don't think they're an accurate reflection of our ability as companies to attract and retain really good employees. Mm -hmm. I recently read an article, and I think this may be connected. It was a Deloitte research report that just came out, and they were talking about the alternative workforce and people who are contractors or independent consultants. And it's really not the alternative workforce anymore. There's 40 plus million of these people in the workforce. Are you seeing anything there or, or how that's impacting the hiring process? Well, what I tell my clients is, do you want a contractor or do you want a full-time employee? You get to choose. You're the company. You're the one providing the work. You're the one providing the either the hourly rate or the salary, depending on the position. Mm -hmm. And so you get to have whatever you want. You get to have whoever you want. Who do you want? Does it make more business sense to have a contractor? Then let's hire a contractor. Does it make more business sense to have a full-time employee that is only concentrating on you and your work? Then let's have that. That really comes down to a business decision from the employer of what do you need in order to be successful in your particular venture. Contractors fill a void. And they are really vital 
I think to companies who are on the precipice of a big growth curve, right? So either a startup who can't afford a full-time employee or even those companies that hit that five-year mark where what got them there is not going to take them to the next level, but maybe they don't have the finances to support more full-time employees. So that's where contractors can really come in and fill a void. Even companies that have the 100 to 200 employees where they're taking on the next big level. Mm -hmm. Same thing, right? And so what I find with contractors is their success is based on where the company is in their growth curve. Mm. Sometimes those contractors are brought in-house and they become great full-time employees. Sometimes the contractor does a project and then they move on and, and, you know, it depends on what the contractor wants also. Right. Yeah. So I love utilizing contractors when the company is not quite ready to take on that next big leap. Our employees are our biggest expense typically. So when you can supplement that with some people who want to be contractors, wonderful. Everybody wins. What else are you noticing? Are there any other big trends that you're noticing in terms of hiring or shifts that are happening in the workplace? Yeah, there's several things. So one thing is that everybody's complaining about unemployment and everybody's complaining that there's no talent pool out there. And, you know, there aren't any good people looking for jobs, la, 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 right? And it's interesting because I am in my 40s And I have lots of friends and colleagues that are looking for jobs and it is taking them a year to a year and a half Hmm. to get a position. I am befuddled by why it's taking this long for very competent, very skilled, very knowledgeable people to get jobs. When my employers on the flip side are complaining about there's no talent out there. Right. There's this enormous disconnect. I can't figure it out. So I don't know what this big disconnect is, but it's unnecessary. Yeah. So that's one big trend that I'm seeing. The second one is people who are complaining about millennials. This just drives me crazy. To base an opinion about an enormous group of people based on the year that they were born is the new discrimination. It's not racist because it's not based on race. It's not sexist because it's not based on gender. It's ageist. And we are punishing an entire generation of workers based on what? I had this conversation with my 95-year-old grandmother, Hmm. and she said to me, we felt the same way about baby boomers. Hmm. So there is this mindset that we as employers get into is the younger people aren't necessary, they aren't important, they're lazy, they're entitled, they're this, this, this. None of that is true. Are there some millennials that are lazy? Sure. Are there baby boomers who are lazy? Absolutely. So it comes down to a particular selection process that is not based on age, race, gender, religious, whatever preferences. I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I'm working very diligently with my clients to say to them, 
no, we're not going to badmouth the millennials. We are going to quit that whole conversation because you cannot hire amazing people if you go into the hiring process with these particular biases. It doesn't work yeah. like that. Yeah, I think the the generational stereotypes or or yeah. characteristics. I th- I just think they're they're way overblown. And mm-hmm. I think if if we've got leaders that have clarity of vision know how to empower people and yet still hold people accountable, coach effectively and doing all of these things that many leaders don't do at most, even senior levels of leadership. I just think some of that generational stuff just goes away. It's, it is just way overblown. I think you're totally dead on right that I always tell my clients that the difference between leaders and managers are the people that they have under them. So when you have the wrong people under them, you manage them. When you have people, right people under you, that's when you get to lead, Yeah. right? Those, the people are behind leaders are the ones that are passionate about their work and they love their job and they can manage their own conflicts at work, our selection process, right? And at that point, when you have people under you and you can lead, you will have an amazing team of people. And nothing else matters. But when you have even one person on your team that is not the right fit, you flip from leader to manager. And when you start managing people, I refer this to mm-hmm. micromanaging, right? You have lost momentum. You've lost it because we're all adults, right? And so when you have adults working for you, adults who can manage their workload, they manage their job, they do it themselves, you don't have to do it, then you get to be the leader. And that is where most people in power want to be. They want to lead. They don't want to manage. I hear this all the time. I want to lead my people. I don't want to manage them. Okay, then we need to hire the right people, right? Yeah. One of the challenges that I often see leaders finding themselves in is they've got someone on their team who's a great producer in whatever they do. Maybe it's in sales or even on the police force, whatever the technical aspect of the role is, but they've got this highly dysfunctional or unhealthy set of behavioral tendencies that have a massive impact on a group of people or a team or department. I call those people derailers. And in my mind, they are never worth keeping around in an organization. And it goes right back to the fact that we've got to hire well and we do it effectively right from the beginning. So you mentioned the selection process. Let's get into some of what you've learned. and, And in your book, Why Can't I Hire Good People? Lessons Learned on How to Hire Better. You make a distinction between hiring good people and hiring good employees. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I don't want you to hire good people. I want you to hire good employees and there's a very big difference. So what I tell my clients is I consider myself a good person. I recycle, I save dogs. (laughs) I'm good, you know, to my kid and her friends. I'm very careful about my carbon footprint you know, blah, blah. I mean, I consider myself a good good person. person, Right. If you put me in front of a computer doing internet research for 50 hours a week, I would have a road rage problem. Mm -hmm. I am not tempered to sit in front of a computer all day. I need to be in front of people. I need to be out. My husband says that I'm working from home too much 
that it is detrimental, not only to me and my business, but to <laughs> everyone else around me, right? Around you, right. It's got to go. So while I'm a good person, there are multiple different positions that I am not a good fit for. Mm-hmm. Meaning, I would not necessarily be a good employee in that role. So my clients will say to me, but she's a great person, Beth. I really like her. Okay, but I I get that. And we appreciate that she's a nice person. Is she doing the job you're asking her to do? Mm -hmm. If she's not doing the job you're asking her to do, then it doesn't matter if she is the good person. She's not a good employee. So what you do at that point, you either find her a role where she can be a good employee or you release her to a company where she can go be an employee Mm -hmm. and then you can like her as a person. You can't like them as a person if they are not doing the job you're asking them to do. All of a sudden you start to hate them. Mm -hmm. I had this client who had an office manager. She was there for five years and he hated going to work every day. He hated going to work in his own office because of her Hmm. nice person could not do the job, could not turn on her computer. I mean, this was, it was just bad. The whole thing was bad. And I said to him, why are you holding on to this good person slash bad employee? Because he was afraid that, I mean, because he hired her, right? Mm -hmm. So hired her how can he trust his hiring process that brought him on this bad employee that's why we hold on to bad employees and i don't want you to do that it it doesn't matter if they're a good person what matters is can they do the job you're asking them to do do they love the job that you're asking them to do yeah and they manage their own conflicts at work you have all three yeses on those they're going to be a great employee and guess what when they're a great employee you're probably going to like them as a person Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find that so many clients and leaders end up managing around personalities. Yeah. So they're a good person and, and, yeah. and there's this loyalty. And so they keep shifting a person's role instead of managing to the role that they need and finding the fit yes. for that role. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about your process. You have a response analysis system that has been proven to improve hiring rates, retention rates, all these really important things in hiring. Give us maybe a few headlines about what that is, and then we can even go through some of the steps in your hiring process. Okay. So the response analysis system, it's kind of ironic. One of my clients actually came up with the name. We learn so much from our clients, don't we? I am here today because of my clients. You are, yeah. They shaped the whole third interview that we'll get into in a minute. A whole third interview came about because a client and I disagreed on a candidate and I said, we're going to bring her back in a third time and we're going to give her a homework assignment. And we did, and she totally blew it. But the, I do a third interview for all of my clients because of this original conflict that I had with my mm-hmm. client. And mm-hmm. we ended up hiring a guy for this role and he's still there to this day. He's been there for almost 10 years. Wow. So, the system itself has been shaped because of my interactions with my clients as we've been moving forward. It's been mm-hmm. Anyway, back to the response analysis. System. Yeah. People will say to me all the time, what questions do you ask? And I will give you the questions. It's not rocket science, but it's not about the questions. It's about the candidate's response and how you analyze 
the candidate's response. So for example, I had a woman say to me one time, my last boss was really great to work with. What is the most dangerous word in that sentence? With. Yeah. She showed no deference to the different level that her boss was above her. Mm. Right? So it's not about the question that I've asked her because I ask the same questions to every single person every single time. It's about her response to that question, what she brings to the table, what he mm. brings to the table, mm. right? And so we get hung up on questions. And it's so fascinating to me, like these books, Hiring and Keeping the Best, it says down at the bottom, including 400 questions. Right. Well, who has time for that? Yeah, yeah. We don't have time for that, right? So it's not about the questions. It's about the candidate's answer. And it's about teaching my clients to pay attention to the exact words that they use. Because that's how you know what mindset they're bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can kind of dig into how they think. What are some ways or, or things that we should be really looking out for in those responses? Okay, so I'm going to talk about red flags. Yeah. Because there's actually two types. So there's words versus words and there's words versus actions. So let's say, for example, someone says to me, I'm very detail oriented, but they can't spell the word detailed. Right. right. Or, or if they say things like I'm never late and then they show up five minutes late. That's words versus actions. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So to pay attention to red flags, both kinds, not just one, but both kinds of red flags when you're interviewing somebody, just because someone is late doesn't necessarily mean you won't hire them. It just means that they're late and you have to decide, is that something I can live with or not as mm -hmm. a hiring manager? Right. Mm -hmm. So the things to look out for are really inflammatory language, which I won't say on a podcast <laughs> or people that come in, you would be shocked at how many C-level people I've interviewed that came to the interview drunk or high or on something wow. and tell me that they love their work and they can't wait to get started. Well, that's words versus action. Out of alignment, right? It's out of alignment. It's mm -hmm. another way to put it is red yeah. flags are out of alignment, right? Mm -hmm. And then also to keep in mind the candidate mindset. The candidate needs a job. And they may not need it financially, but they definitely need it mentally. Mm -hmm. So they will tell you everything that you want to hear in an interview in order to get this job. And then once they've gotten the job, then they look around and go, I don't know that this is the job for me. So your job as the hiring manager is to make sure that you are paying very close attention to the words that they use, to the actions that they take. This executive director one time that I interviewed for a nonprofit and he did a presentation for us. It was all in green ink because he ran out of black ink. Do you want the job or not? He doesn't want that job. Right. Right. There's something really powerful in paying attention to how people show up 
Yes. What they're doing. Yes. And some of what we've been doing in interviews and encouraging clients to do in interviews is to create simulations where you actually, and I heard you use the word homework, maybe that's very similar, but you're actually watching the candidate doing something because some people can be great at interviewing, but not good at actually the work that they're interviewing for. And so just seeing them in action, watching them do the job can often help us link what they're doing to how they think about what they're doing. Well, and then as a hiring manager or the C-level person or whatever, whoever is running this interview process, you have to pay attention to that A and you have to be willing to cut someone loose if they are acting that way. And my clients are like, but I need this position filled yesterday. Mm-hmm. I don't have time to wait for them. That's, send me your top five people. Well, that never works because my top five people may not be their top five people. Right. Nobody can interview or hire for you, by the way. Not even me. And I've interviewed almost 20,000 people in my career. I cannot hire for my clients. I can hire with them mm-hmm. and I can help facilitate, right? But I cannot hire for them. And they get in a hurry. They get to panic. I've got sales that I have made and now operations can't perform because I've made all these sales and we need more people and we got to have them yesterday. And they get into this panic mindset and what they will do is they will settle. Yeah. And my whole job is to teach people how to not settle, right? And I sit in these interviews with my clients and I conduct these interviews in front of them and they want to settle. No, we're not going to settle. Remember, we're not going to settle. Because when you settle, you make bad hiring decisions. Settling is, I know that person is not the right fit for the job. I'm going to hire them anyway. That's what settling is. Yeah. Because you know, you know in your gut, you know this isn't the right fit. You know it. Right? Mm -hmm. So, and as a leader, then you end up spending way more time managing and, and yes. motivating them. And instead of when, as Jim Collins talks about in good to great, when you've got the right person in the right seat, they'll be motivated regardless of yes. where the strategy goes in the business. That's correct. You've got a seven step process. Let's spend a little bit of time, maybe stepping through those. The first sure. step in your process is create an ideal candidate description, but this is a little bit different than what I've heard. organizations do in the past. Right. So my clients typically are suffering from what I call the hiring hangover. They are not excited about hiring this next person. They are traumatized by having to fire the last one. Mm -hmm. They are horrified that they hired the last one. Yeah. I mean, really my clients are wounded. Mm -hmm. They are rattled. I don't even know what I missed in the interview process that I would hire this person who's a nice person, but has just caused my team, my executive team to implode. Right. So they're not excited about this next person. And so in order to get them out of the, okay, I've made these horrible mistakes in the past. I came up with this idea and actually a client, again, a client came up with this Mm -hmm. process and we go through and we say the best employee you've ever had, describe them to me. Oh, Beth, they're responsible. They take initiative. They anticipate needs. I mean, I go in and I say, I need the blah, blah. I had it on your desk yesterday afternoon. 
I need to contact that. I've already contacted them. There's an appointment for you on the calendar. They're loyal. They're driven. They love to come to work every day. They're mm -hmm. excited, enthusiastic, all this. And we go through this whole list of qualifiers that my clients will say. And then I say to them, and oh, by the way, not once did you mention skills. And it happens every time. They look up at me and go, oh. And then I say to them, and what is the first thing you look for on a resume? Skills. So you already have a disconnect between what you want and what you're looking for. So the goal here is to get them out of this negative mindset to reframe the vision for this role, to get them focused on how amazing their life is going to be when this person shows up, and to highlight the very beginning of this process, the mistakes that they made before. Mm -hmm. Because just to your point earlier, you were talking about the derailer and right. how skilled they are and how they ruin relationships and they cause whole teams of people to walk out the door because everybody thinks that the producer has to stay. Not true. That is just not true. Right. And so to get them out of that mindset, we start with an idealist. Yeah. What do you want? If you can have mm -hmm. anything you want, have any one that you want, who would they be and why? Yeah. Great yeah. leaders always focus on the outcome first versus yes. the problem. And so that's really, this is a vision for that ideal candidate. And that leads into step two, which is developing the job description. Right. So the job description is usually already written. Mm -hmm. It's gathering dust in somebody's filing cabinet. Most organizations do this already. Yeah, they do that. But what I tell them to do is to update it. And then we use the job description as a homework assignment in the process. So we send the job description to them before the skills interview, the second interview, and we say to them, please read over this and come with questions. And so what it does is they know, because they'll never read the job description again, I guarantee it, right? So then they read the job description before they get the job, and now you've set the tone of these are the expectations for success for this role. Right. So you use that in your process to make sure that they understand what is expected of them. Mm -hmm. Step three, you write the job ad to yes. weed out the bunny slippered pasta throwers. <laughs> what is that? So what I tell people is with the creation of online job ads, I don't know how old you are, but when I got out of college, there was no internet. I had to put on right. my pantyhose. Yeah, yeah, we're about the same age. <laughs> right. well, I didn't have pantyhose, but we uh, <laughs> you, the to company around, A, yeah. you have to talk to somebody, drive to company B. So you had to be very strategic in your job right. search. Mm -hmm. you, know, you had to figure out what companies can I target today, and it's not going to be many, you know, five to eight-ish if you're a real go-getter. You can apply for a hundred jobs on a Sunday morning in your fuzzy bunny slippers. And so people throw pasta at the wall to see what sticks, right? Yep. And this is typically what people do. They post the job description online. No one's going to read it. They skip down to the application process. And then if they get called for an interview, they'll go back and read it. But they don't read it when they apply. Mm -hmm. So why A, put all that company proprietary information in the internet? B, put out an ad that inspires nobody hmm. and see you've done it before this way the whole time you've been in business. It hasn't worked. 
So when you write your job ad, you start with the mission statement. Why do you do the work that you do? Mm. You inspire people to go, oh my God, that's the job I want. I do that every day. This is the job that I want. Then you put in a line of we're looking for so-and-so and then you put some bullet points and then you put on how to apply. Please send resume and cover letter to Beth Smith, you know, and that way if they don't send a resume and cover letter, that's the pasta throwing people. Right. You know, because they don't care enough about you or your job to tailor mm-hmm. a resume to be invited in for an interview. Mm-hmm. So you're adding your job description to completely document. Yeah. That's really helpful, by the way. We're in the process of hiring another client coordinator, and that we're missing that piece of our process, that job ad. Step four is receive and review resumes. And maybe we can move through this one quickly because I really want to get into your step five, six, and seven, which is really about the interviews. So let me quickly say about resumes, I want you to never read a resume, Hmm. ever. You make assumptions and biases based on what someone puts on paper. So I have a blog called People on Paper Are Not People in Person. Hmm. I don't want you to read resume. I go into every interview blind, totally blind, just like my clients do, okay? Now you have to have, somebody has to read them. Somebody has to review them. And there's a whole chapter in that book about how to review a resume and and what to do to what to bring in. But tell whoever it is, open the door wide. I want you to interview 30 people for a position, not five. I want you to over interview, not under interview. So don't read your resumes. You will go into it totally biased and already you've, quote unquote, derailed your interview process by deciding what you want before you even talk to anybody. Hmm. Right? So don't read resumes. The first interview, step five, is about can I work with this person? Yes. Conflict resolution. So I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to sail through this stuff. Okay, Uh, great. Two types of conflict at work. Conflict with your boss who can fire you. Mm -hmm. Conflict with your peers who cannot. If you cannot manage your own conflicts at work, guess who has to manage them for you? Yeah, right. Okay? The boss has to. And at this point, when you have hired someone that you have to manage their conflicts for them, you're not running a business. You're running a daycare. Okay? This is where we get, I am so tired of running a child care organization. Right. All the time. That's all adults. Yeah. We should be anyway, right? So when you have two people on your staff that don't get along and you have to intervene, that's why my people, my clients are so tired of managing people because it's this piece that is missing. So in the first interview, it's all about, can you manage your own conflicts at work? If you can't, I don't care what skill set you have. It's not going to work out for you. Yeah. So what we do typically is we hire for a skill set and then they can't manage their conflicts like the derailers you were talking about earlier. Right, right. Right. And what does that do for you? Absolutely nothing. Because at the end of the day, the skills, they don't matter. What matters is can they manage their own conflicts at work? Because the right fit, you can teach the skills. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that first interview is all about, can I work with a person? Can they handle conflict in a yes. healthy and productive way? Step yes. six is more 
about skills. Can the person do the job? Yeah. So this is where you want to delve into, can they do the job I'm asking them to and do? And this is a separate interview. Oh, yes. And you have to have three interviews. You have to. The first one, they'll come in and they will knock your socks off. Then you get all enamored by these skills that they have because that is the shiny quarter that all of my people get really stoked about. And then the third interview, I don't know what it is about the third interview, whether they let down or what the thing is, but they blow it regularly in the third interview. It's shocking to me. Interesting. People do this. So give you a quick example. I interviewed an electrical engineer who had his PE. He had worked for all of the big guys. He had done electrical engineering for 20 years. And I happened to ask him, what's your dream job? And he opened his arms like this. And he said, I would be a ballroom dance instructor on a cruise ship. (laughs) So this Eeyore that we had been interviewing about electrical engineer, that is not what turned his light on anymore. No pun. Right. Mm -hmm. What turned his light on was ballroom dancing. So when you are going to hire somebody, they manage the conflicts at work. They can do the job you're asking them to do. And they love the work you're offering. Right. And that's step seven. Are they passionate? Step seven. Yes. That's step seven. If you don't have all three yeses on interview one, two, and three, they won't last. Yeah. Yeah. They won't Uh, last. Yeah, and it, all three components are, are critical. One, can you work with them? Number two, can they do the job, right? We still need people to have the right skills or at least be trainable in the skills. And then three, they really want to be here. Are they passionate about the work? One final question before we wrap up. Yeah. I know from, from research that most turnover happens in the first 12 to 18 months of an employee's tenure. What advice do you have for managers? What's that? That's untrue. Untrue. What's the data from your perspective? 50% of all new hires will leave their jobs within six months. Interesting. So it's even sooner. It's awful. And they give two reasons. One, they didn't know what the job was when they got hired. And two, they never got trained. Yeah. So if you think about the training element, we don't know if anybody's going to make it or not. So we just don't even bother with training because it's expensive, right? Yep. I tell people, you have to train your new hires. If you don't, they will leave faster, yeah. right? They have to know what the job is and they have to be trained on it. Otherwise, why bother? Might as well do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Beth, this has been really insightful. I've been taking notes and I know we're going to make a few tweaks to our hiring process. Good. Thank my you. Pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure, Sal. Thank you for inviting me. I, this was fun. Awesome. Have okay. a great rest of the day. Too. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.